This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. everyone and welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. Today I have invited onto the podcast Scott Shara. Scott is the grieving father of Grace Shara, a 19-year-old young woman with Down syndrome who died in the hospital in 2021 while receiving care for COVID. The hospital, St. Elizabeth's in Appleton, Wisconsin, was pressuring the family to put Grace on a ventilator. Uh, They didn't believe she was in distress. They didn't want to go that route. They said no. And then what happened after that is the subject of a lawsuit. Grace's family believes that COVID-19 policies incentivizing ventilator use and COVID diagnosis and death from COVID uh, played a role in her death. Scott, I, I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm very sorry for your loss. Grace was a beautiful girl, and there is a video of her. Uh, she seemed like just such a, a, a beam of sunshine, very active. I, I can't imagine how devastating her loss has been to your family. And I'll have a link to that video, because if you're listening to this, you should definitely see the video. Um, This case has gotten quite a bit of national attention. Can you give our listeners who are unfamiliar just a brief description of when Grace was brought to the hospital and what happened between that time and the time of her death? Grace was brought to the hospital on October 6th of 2021. We brought her there because we were measuring her oxygen saturation with a pulse ox and it dropped the night before to 88% or I should say the morning of to 88%. And we were led to believe by following the FLCCC protocol, um, we had Grace already on ivermectin, vitamins, and but we were led to believe by that protocol, if oxygen saturation dropped below 94%, admit yourself to the hospital. So we did that. And seven days later, Grace was dead. Uh, if we would have never admitted her to the hospital, Grace would be alive today. And I know that with certainty because I went into a different hospital three days after Grace died. I was substantially worse, and that hospital turned me around in 24 hours. And they did because they didn't follow the protocols that the hospital that killed Grace did. So what everybody's focusing on and what you're leading was this Grace's last day, which is the most nefarious. Uh, in the process, I was taken out by an armed guard on October 10th. Grace's last day on earth was the 13th. She was put on a sedation med called Presidex starting on October 9th. Of course, what I'm sharing with you, we know now because of reviewing all the records, Presidex should have never been used on Grace. It was used to set up a ventilator. If you use Presidex, it's not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours because it causes acute respiratory failure. That is the first cause of death on Grace's death certificate. It is the truth, but the hospital caused it. On Grace's last day, she was already on it for five days. In spite of that, Grace was still herself, meaning in spite of being sedated. Mm -hmm. The morning of Grace's last day, the doctor called us, telling us how great of a day Grace had. We should work on nutrition. While he was on the phone with us, they increased the dose of Presidex to the maximum allowable dose. Simultaneous with hanging up the phone, he put a do not resuscitate order on Grace. 
Then they combined Presidex mm. with lorazepam and morphine in a 29-minute window. Grace was dead an hour and 13 minutes later. And those meds are used to euthanize somebody when they're on their last hour of life in hospice care. And that's why we're filing a lawsuit. And it is, it's bigger. Uh. It's gotten so big, the story, because as I have been doing research, I realized that there is a euthanasia agenda and Grace was euthanized under that agenda. COVID exposed that agenda. And so we're, we filed the lawsuit yeah. because it allows an opportunity to shed light on this literal evil. Um, so that's the short version of what happened. Yeah. And it, it, people think this is, is, doesn't exist in this country, but we just had a state, Vermont now, that is going to have assisted suicide tourism, basically. They're going to allow people from out of state to travel there. Um, people were very sick. And this opens the door for telemed. So this is very alive and well. It's very uh, prevalent in Canada, which is not far from Wisconsin. And so it's all very chilling. Um, you know, usually families in hospitals are on the same team with one goal, which is treating the family member to the point where they can be released. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about when the relationship started to change and at what point did they suggest the ventilator and were they even receptive to your concerns about doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, uh, I wrote my contemporaneous notes out uh, shortly after Grace died and I called it 110%. And the reason I called it that is because they, they really had a disrespectful attitude toward me. They said multiple times, we're, you know, we know what we're doing. We've been doing this for two years. We're given 110%. They didn't want to hear anything. So it was a very condescending attitude. So you asked, when did it go bad? Um, I would say it didn't go bad until after we knew what they did, because we blindly trusted the white coat. So even though they were condescending and treated us terribly, we never thought they were going to try to kill Grace. We just thought, well, this you know, I, I've been in a yeah. hospital before. I think, well, they tend to be rude. You know, it isn't, every, you know, the, the exception is getting somebody who cares and really genuinely cares for you. Otherwise, they, they, um, it's, it's not a good environment. And an example, just to, so people understand, the COVID expert, whose name was Dr. Zymet, the first day he came in to evaluate Grace. I happened to be in the restroom when he came in. I mean, he's coming in for seconds. And so he announces he's there. I said, hey, I'm just getting done. I'll wash up. I'll come right out. Nope, I can't wait. So he calls me, says that they want to put Grace on a drug called toxilisumab. This is one of the few times they even talk to us about anything. There was no informed consent whatsoever. But he said, we want to do this. I said, well, I, I don't know what it is. I said, spell it. So he spells it for me. I write it down. I start researching. And then he sends another man in, another doctor, and asks, what's my decision? So I had talked with the doctor on the outside. We looked this thing up. We found out that the, the blind placebo group study showed the placebo group did better than the drug group, and the drug has 17 side effects. So I told him we're not doing it. He said, why? So I showed him the New England Journal of Medicine study on my laptop, and he got mad at me. So, I mean, that gives you a perspective yeah. oh, of what wow. it was like. I found out subsequently toxilisumab is under the emergency youth author, use authorization list. And so that's why they were pushing it. And I also found out that one dose of that drug is 22000 to the hospital. So, you know, 
<laughs> right. Not a surprise, right? <laughs> yeah, pushing all these um, EU these experimental drugs on patients, and I mean, did they know that she had tried ivermectin, and did, were they? How did they respond to that? Because they just yeah, that's they know that. <laughs> they're dealing with a family that knows what they're talking about, right? Right. They responded. I mean, the again, the same doctor, they write a report. Every doctor writes a report when they come into the room. So his report, Dr. Zyman's report from the very first day, October 7th, said that the family is following the frontline doctor's misinformation campaign. And he referenced that twice in that report. And he also referenced that... You know, Grace was unvaccinated. His final comment in that report was that if she would be vaccinated, she wouldn't be here. So, I mean, they had a bias mm. towards, uh, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, I, we find out these reports after the fact, but I mean, I could tell there was a bias while we were there, but you, you don't think that bias is part of, you still think they're going to do their job. Right. right. You can't imagine. Right. You you know, we all trust hospitals. You're you're at their mercy, really, at, at some point. Um, now, you and your daughter, your daughter had a disability. She was 19 years old. Uh, did this give the hospital more leverage against you? I know this always gets to be a funny issue, even with non-disabled parents or um, adults, young adults who are over the age of 18. And if their parents come in, they have no say unless the children consent to that. Um, your daughter had a disability. Can you talk a little bit about how that came into play and informs consent? Because they did ask you, right, if you, they could put this drug, put her on this drug. Yeah, that was the only time they asked about a specific drug. Otherwise, they did all, you know, like the Presidex, lorazepam, morphine. They never got our permission for any of that stuff. Uh, you know, so how the disability impacted was was a few different things. So. When I brought Grace to the emergency room, they, the physician recommended admitting her to the hospital. I said, well, I'll be staying with her. And the nurse immediately said, well, you can't. I said, well, what's the reason? And they said, well, because COVID policy doesn't allow visitors in the patient room on the COVID wing. I said, well, I'll be taking Grace home then. And, you know, I, there's no way I was going to leave Grace alone. She couldn't be alone. And, yeah. you know, they, they came back after two hours and they de- said, we decided you can stay. So her disability got me to the point of being able to stay where 99.9% of the people have, you know, they let this crazy COVID policy exclude the family from the room. Um, then they asked me on October 8th. So that was the second day about the um, power of attorney relationship. So my wife and I had medical power of attorney on Grace. And so, you know, they knew they asked for that document. I provided the document. They knew that we had the decision-making authority. Uh, so there was never a question as to that. And, and it's very important. People understand the, we have a right to inform consent. The hospital, just because we have a right, doesn't mean they're going to volunteer informed consent. You have yeah. to stand your ground and make sure that, you know, that's that as far as protecting people in a hospital, that's the single most important thing I've learned with all of this. If I would have understood my right to informed consent, Grace would be alive today. Especially in ICU, you really have to watch what's going on. And that, that's been my personal experience. I have friends who've done the same thing and they've caught mistakes. Yeah, these are a lot of times hospitals run under the gun. They're run by overworked residents and people have been working long shifts, and people are prone to making mistakes. There may not be any intentional um, 
uh, mistake there. But I mean, you really, it's, it, it is very helpful to have family members in there to watch, to be kind of a, an advocate for the patient who cannot speak for themselves, obviously, if they're in ICU. Um, boy, do you suppose now the ventilator, do you think they now tell, tell us back, I'd like you to back up a little bit and how they ended up escorting you out of the hospital. What, what led to that? Well, the challenge on the ventilator would be one thing. Uh, so I'll just give you the event first and then back into it. So the morning of the, the 10th of October, this was Sunday morning, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and said, you need to leave immediately. I said, what's the basis for that? She said, well, the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. And that's what I want to cover as we dive into that. Then she also said, uh, you've been shutting off the alarms at night. And to which I said, the nurses trained me how to shut off the non-essential alarms because they're going off regularly and Grace needs to get sleep. And then she said, we, uh, the third thing is we suspect you have COVID, which I, I could hardly believe that. That's so laughable because they're the ones who told me I was going to get COVID. They said, you're going to get COVID, be in the room with her. I said, I don't care. I'm, I need to be with my daughter. So to tell me we suspect you have COVID, if they thought that they should have asked me on October 7th, the first day, I tested myself with a home test right. in the hospital room because I had a fever already in the afternoon of the 7th and I it tested positive, yeah, but they never asked. They just used yeah. it as, as an excuse because they didn't want me in the room. But, you know, so I'll give you three examples of, of what she's talking about by, I was challenging things. So, for example, the, with the ventilator, the pulmonologist came in on the morning of the 8th and said, you need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. At this point, my ventilator paradigm was set by President Trump. I thought ventilators were just a tool for COVID. I didn't realize they're a death sentence. And so, I, you know, thankfully, we never put Grace on a ventilator. But he said, or I asked him then, what is the basis for that recommendation? He said, well, we did a blood gas draw last night and... Um, that shows that Grace's needs a ventilator. I said, well, what time did you do the blood gas draw? And they did it at a time when Grace was, um, we were we were um, working with getting her set up on oxygen, the BiPAP, and, you know, it was a stressful time. So I said, I don't think those numbers are accurate. I'd like you to redo the blood gas. So they did, and she was fine. And, you know, then the uh, subsequent doctor relative to the ventilator, because now this doctor, I asked, what's the prognosis if Grace needs to go on a ventilator? He said, well, only 20% of people walk out alive. So he told me a version of the truth. Well, then I started digging into it. I realized yeah. we're not doing a ventilator. Well, then they send in the, <laughs> the right. hospitalist, which is the, the paid salesman for the hospital. The hospitalist comes in and, and, uh, and says to me, well, isn't the 20% chance better than no chance? So they're framing grace as no chance to live. That was a complete lie. Yeah. Uh, so then another example was on the, the next day, October 9th, uh, Grace was hungry. Uh, of course, Grace could feed herself. She's very high functioning, but she had a BiPAP mask on. So I ordered food. They bring the food in. I start feeding her. And uh, the nurse came running in and said, you can't do that. So what's the reason? She said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. I thought, that's impossible. So I put my pulse ox on Grace's finger and it read 95%. And so I called her back in and, and I asked her if my, me my meter reading was accurate. She said, yes, it is. I said, well, why is my meter reading 95% when yours is reading 85%? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. So, of course, then I said, well, if that's a known fact, 
why aren't these leads being changed out every three to four hours or whatever it takes to provide an accurate reading, given this is the primary tool you're using to manage my daughter. Right. Care. And she shook her finger yeah. at me and said, you should just be thankful you caught this. So, I mean, it was these type of things yeah. that were happening that, you know, as, yeah, I replay yeah. it now and you would think, why didn't I see this? Right. You know, I know. And, and, and you're in the middle of a crisis. It's really hard to navigate and see what's going on. Now you have 2020 hindsight, but you, you can see why, you know, why you would think the way you did at the time, you know, you don't think that they're your enemy, Correct. right? That's right on. Now, I, I, and getting on this same point, you, you probably, you might've heard of this, this, um, idea, but maybe not. Um, there's this protocol called events against medical advice. Were you aware of that? So that since you had power of attorney, um, could you, if you did, do you know about that first of all, and would it have given you any authority to remove her from the hospital? Yeah, I have learned about it subsequently. And so the specific situation relative to grace that we, you know, I replay in my mind and, uh, very often. And I did for the first three months every single day is why did I take her with me on October 10th and so that's where against medical advice would have came up so if I would have been wise to what's going on or just said okay I can't leave Grace alone I'm taking her with me they would have waived the against medical advice card so why and the reason why was because Grace was on Presidex at that point Presidex was the sedation med so why did that do it well as I learned after the fact Presidex caused Grace's room to be classed ICU. Grace never changed rooms, nor did the care change, but the the bill changed. So the bill that the hospital sent to Medicaid changed the room to ICU because she was on uh, Presidex. So if I would have said I'm taking Grace with me, they would have they would have made me they would have at least attempted to uh, make me sign the against medical advice form to take her out, which I would have gladly signed if I would have been woken up to what was going on. Yeah, this Presidex, you're convinced that the reason they put her on this is because they were going to put that ventilator on her hooker crook. I'm positive. Is that I'm, possibly it? Well, or, I'm positive yeah. of it because after that first, you know, when the doctor said you need to put your daughter on the ventilator uh, in the next two hours, they asked us for a pre-authorization that just in case this comes up, we'd like your pre-authorization to put Grace on a ventilator. They did that four different times. And the morning of Grace's last day, they asked, you know, for that fourth, you know, four more times. So the fifth time about the ventilator, we said, you know, the pre-authorization, we said no. And once we said no, the sequence of events completely changed to instead of taking care of Grace, but she died eight hours later. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about two more things. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out what's, what's the best order here. Uh, let's first talk about the COVID policies. So what tell the listeners who don't know, uh, these were heavily incentivized treatments, the ventilator use of certain drugs. What did you learn subsequently? about use of ven the ventilator? Well, I did a deep dive into the money trail and the incentives. So a ventilator, you know, I thought, what is going on with this? Why do they keep pressuring us with the ventilator? Of course, this was, this was in January, Grace said in October. So that's when I started diving into the money and I saw, oh my gosh, a ventilator. Not only did they get a 
like a signing bonus when they put you on the ventilator at 39,000, but then the average length of time somebody stays alive on a ventilator with COVID is 22 days. So when you add up all of the money the hospital receives over that period of time, it's about a $300,000 payday. So I thought, oh my gosh, that's why they keep pushing this, or they were trying to push this ventilator on us. And when we said no for the fifth time, they realized, okay, our money for this patient is going to dry up. Statistically, the hospital had no beds available the great day Grace died. And they had people in the emergency room waiting for a bed. So connect the dots. Yeah, they had opportunities to make more money. Uh, and they this was um, this bed wasn't getting any money at some point. <laughs> the investment was gone. Um, so you could see why they were really pressuring. Um, now, what about the DNR? This is really frightening. So... Most people don't even know what this is. They don't have one, and but it comes up if you're in the hospital and people don't realize how much, because uh, we've had a couple articles in healthcare news about this, how often this does come up and how much power hospitals really do have in these matters. Well, you think a, D, a do not resuscitate order, a DNR, is likely the most important document a person could ever sign because what you're telling the world is that if you get into a situation where you would need to be resuscitated to stay alive, you're saying you don't want that. Okay. So that I, my background is as a, a CPA. Um, I used to do estate planning. DNRs are part of estate planning, mm. but the purpose of using a DNR in estate planning is, in situations where somebody becomes a vegetable and then, okay, well now I'm, I'm on life support and if things go south, I don't want to be revived. So that's how people have used those historically. Well, now they're using them as a tool to free up bed space. And so a DNR in the paradigm of today's environment is a scary thought. And what we learned is not only did the doctor put a DNR on Grace without our permission, when we challenged that through the, you know, we've got a lot of things going on. We challenged it through the Department of Safety and Professional Services, which is the regulatory agency in Wisconsin. Now we're challenging it in the lawsuit. But the state, the Department of Safety and Professional Services wrote us back and said that the chapter regulating DNRs in Wisconsin doesn't apply to hospital settings. So that means that the doctor can unilaterally put a DNR on somebody at his discretion. Well, think through what that means. You can't wrap your head around that. That means you're turning the authority over your life and death to a doctor who you don't know, who's incentivized by the United States government, who we don't trust. Yeah. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Right. And then that's, that's the world we live in. And who know, I don't know if liability even plays an issue if this thing is signed, whether that gives them a little more protection. Who knows? Um, I want to ask you about another document you shared with me, and this was the prohibition against discrimination on assisted suicide. I had to read this three or four times because it just did, it kind of blew me away. I didn't understand what I was reading. It sounded very Orwellian. <laughs> Can you tell us, this is a document that you discovered that came out in 2010, like right around Obamacare. Tell, can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. This is so our country is the best country in the world at pointing our finger at everybody else. So these naughty Canadians with their medical assistance and suicide, you were talking about a state that's 
that's going to be an assisted suicide uh, sanctuary state. Well, we we passed Obamacare, and this document that I shared with you, it's it's uh, the date is March 23rd of 2010. This is right out of Obamacare. Obamacare is 974 pages long. This is page 141, section 1553 of Obamacare. Obamacare was written um, chiefly by Ezekiel Emanuel, and his perspective, which is through Obamacare, what is highlighted in this particular section, is that once you become a non-contributing member of society, you don't deserve health care. So Grace, of course, was a non-contributing member of society. She was disabled. She was on Medicaid. All right. So what this says specifically, I'll just paraphrase the first half of the first paragraph. It says the government, that's what I'm paraphrasing, and then quote, may not subject an individual, that's a doctor, or an institutional health care facility, so that's a hospital or a nursing facility, hospice care, to discrimination. So the government can't discriminate on the basis that that entity does not provide any health care item or service furnished for the purpose of causing or the purpose of assisting in causing the death of any individual, such as by assisted suicide, euthanasia, or mercy killing. So grace was taken out by euthanasia. This is legal. <laughs> Obamacare says yeah. this is what the deal is. Yeah. This is how we are going to kill you. Yeah. And if you don't want to follow the game plan, you can't be discriminated against. That's the purpose of this section. Yeah, I, so they're that, telling us in writing that, what they're doing. The word discrimination really throws me for a loop. So you're discriminating, you're preventing, you're trying to discriminate, prevent discrimination in allowing someone to take your life. Like, it's just so strange. Um, the other thing, the other document was uh, something from the Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin. Now, um, they discussed in this document a unique issues that may complicate end-of-life care decision-making when it comes to people with Down syndrome. Can you tell us what you know about that line? So this document is from Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin. You can put any state in it because it's going to be in all 50 states. And the, this is a training document for doctors and nurses. And the title of this training document is Palliative Care for Patients with Down Syndrome. So, of course, I'm, I, I care about people with Down Syndrome because that's what Grace had. So this is how they implement Obamacare. So the assisted suicide, euthanasia, mercy killing agenda, this is how they implement it. So there's a training document to implement what I just read. So what they do in this document is they first introduce Down syndrome as a major problem. These people are nothing but problems. They have all kinds of health problems etc. So you see that in the introduction. Then what they do is after they set the stage that these people are nothing but problems, they assume that the family doesn't want them. You know, Grace was nothing but a blessing to us. Right. She was Grace. She was an angel. But they assume then because of all these problems, the family doesn't want them. So then they write a transition statement in this training document. It says the, the lifelong toll on families is high. Part of a robust plan of care includes acknowledgement of this toll by the healthcare providers. So we're supposed to, as healthcare providers, realize these families don't want their Down syndrome person in their family because they're a problem. Yeah. So then they set up the kill. The kill statement says, whenever possible, decision makers for people with Down syndrome should be encouraged to use substituted judgment. That's the doctor's judgment to make key palliative care decisions. All efforts should be made to determine the preferences of the patient. However, because of lifelong cognitive impairment, the views of the person with Down syndrome may not be known. Well, I knew what Grace's view was. I know what the view of every Down syndrome person is on the planet. They want to live. 
So this is insanity, yeah. but this is the license. It is a literal license to kill. So this is the attitude they have in a hospital setting for people with Down syndrome. It's unbelievable. This is how they're trained. You know, this morning I had coffee in a coffee house that was owned by a Down syndrome adult. And his family helped him open up this cafe. It was the cutest, nicest, I had a great cup of coffee. But, you know, like it, it just goes to show you um, the night, you know, the ignorance of some people thinking that uh, because you're not like everybody else, uh, that somehow you're lesser. And it, it's really horrible just to think about. Um, I want to ask you before I let you go about the lawsuit. What, what's going on with it and what are you seeking and, and, and how do you think it will go? So we filed the lawsuit on April 11th and what the, where it's going right now, they had to legally respond. They, as the hospital, the five doctors and two nurses as defendants, they all had to respond by May 15th. They all did respond by May 15th. Uh, it is a long road to hold. Um, the responses are in a lot of ways laughable. I'm going to pull one up so you you get a perspective of what I'm saying. It'll just take me a second okay. here on my laptop. Uh, the the um, you know it's it's some of it's frustrating. Uh, you know, but we're the purpose of the lawsuit is to shed light on evil. There's almost no money in these lawsuits. We've already said if we get any money, we're disclaiming it. We're not taking any money. Uh, that's why people don't file. Attorneys don't take on the cases because they, they, the, the clients don't have any money. So then the attorneys are expected to take it on contingency, but there's no money in these things. So we're paying for, we're paying for the lawsuit because an attorney will not take a case like this on contingency. Yeah. You know, we're, we're believing God is behind us. So we think we're going to win. But I mean, the, you know, if you look at this as David and Goliath, that's the proper framing. Goliath is Ascension Hospital System. They have $30 billion in cash. These are some of the answers Ascension gave. So when we filed, it's called a summons and complaint. That happened on April 11th. When they responded, it's called an answer. So they answered on May 15th. I'm going to read a couple. Okay. So, quote, in, in answer to paragraph six of the complaint, deny that Ascension Health directly provides health care services. Another one, in another quote, in Answer to paragraph 40 of the complaint, deny that Scott Sherrill was removed from the hospital. Mm. Another one. <laughs> what, what was I doing then? Where did I go? Was I just hiding? Mm -hmm. uh, another one. And in answer to paragraph 66 of the complaint, deny that the hospital's nursing staff ever refused to assist Grace Sherrill. My gosh, I mean, we begged <laughs> them to come in. They wouldn't come yeah. in. And then, then they have a thing, a separate section of the response called affirmative defenses. Affirmative defense number six, quote, any and all injuries or damages sustained by plaintiffs may be a direct and proximate result of the negligence and or decisions made by the plaintiffs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But here's something. So you think, well, did is this just all, you know, deny, deny, lies, lies. But they did admit something. You ready? You sitting down? Yeah. It says, quote, in answer to paragraph 74 of the complaint, comma, admit that Grace Shero passed away. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when I had read it, I thought, did you guys actually pay for this document? You know, how could the attorney, you know, but you, I mean, we all know the only one who ever gets rich in a lawsuit are the attorneys. Yeah. Um, we have quite a legal team. You know, I, I, uh, I don't have faith in a lawsuit. 
but the legal team has been um, outstanding. Uh, I had 10 hours yesterday on the legal aspect of this, five hours on phone calls with attorneys and five hours reviewing documents. And it, it's intense. It's just another piece of this, but we feel uh, the need to to do it to help expose the evil. Yeah, I'll shed some light. And that's what, you know, many of these lawsuits are all about. There have been so many under covid and we are learning new things, and hopefully we'll, we will never repeat many of these things ever, ever again. What's surprising is you, you don't think it'll happen again, but then something totally new will come down the pike that you can't even anticipate. So we just always have to remain vigilant. And um, Scott, I, I, oh, I, one question. I, I'm sure you, you're probably doing some crowdsourcing for the uh, legal costs, um, crowdfunding. Um, I think I did see on one of the websites that uh, you've been raising money from the public. Is that? Yeah, so we're we're actually not raising money from the public yet for the lawsuit, mm-hmm. and, and we do have a gift send go set up. But uh, the reason you know is you know other people can use the the money. We we have money budgeted for this lawsuit, but. What we're raising money for is the awareness campaign. We have billboards up, and so that's where the the money people are contributing through the gifts and go is going to uh, the PR, the uh, billboards, et cetera. We don't have any payroll or anything, so I mean, 100% of the money is being spent to get the message out. So that's where we're spending the money. We have a separate website set up that people can go to, uh, gracechara.com, which is S-C-H-A-R-A, we're asking, yeah, not you know, you'll see a gifts and go there, but we're really asking for people to put in their name and email. And the reason is we're we're um, desiring to build a database so that when we have calls to action with the case, we can get a hold of people. My daughter Jessica's maintaining that site, and she's sending out weekly updates right now. Great. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate um, coming you coming on the podcast, and I think the public owes you a debt of gratitude for your perseverance and trying to get to the truth of the matter and to shed some light on these really, really destructive policies and, um, you know, bringing attention to these big issues. And, and again, we're sorry for, for the loss of your daughter. Um, I, I will include a lot of these links again on the podcast notes and our prayers are with you and, and hope that justice prevails. Thank you, Anne. I really appreciate the, the time you've given me. And uh, I do want to mention we did reach out to the hospital, but we have not gotten a response. Um, As always, if you enjoyed this discussion, please share the link and become a regular subscriber to the Heartland Daily Podcast if you're not already. Uh, It's a great way, along with healthcare news and the Heartland Daily News, to stay on top of public policies that preserve the free market, transparency, um, just integrity in the healthcare system. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again for another issue in healthcare news. This is Anne-Marie Schieber.